Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a firsthand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech just like we do here on The Disruptors. This show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App. And coffee, seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now, let's get on with the program. I I think most of my work as a futurist is on the near future rather than the far future. And so, you know, I'm kind of focused on the the near future issues. I think, you know, the climate, the effects of climate change are clearly pretty proximate now. But the one that seems to be being under-addressed is the economic impact of automation uh, technology, particularly cognitive automation. You know, in the UK, we were meant to have a sort of governmental panel looking at this in, in, in seriousness maybe three years ago, which if it's met at all yet, it's barely met and doesn't seem to have made many recommendations. It, it doesn't seem to be taken particularly seriously because there's a whole school of economists who say, ah, people have said, you know, with every technological revolution that there'll be job losses and this time's different and this time's going to be no different. It'll be growth, growth, growth. And I'm skeptical of that view. I really am. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Climate change is a dystopia in the making, but it doesn't have to be. The same with mass unemployment and automation. Things are coming our way, and yet we are in a position to shape these seemingly as the alpha species of Earth. What are we going to do about it? Today, we've got Tom Cheeseworth on the program. He's a futurist, speaker, engineer, and the, and the author of Book of the Future. He spent 14 years working in mechatronics for some top global companies like IBM and others. And he's a frequent speaker on both TV and radio, BBC, News Roundtable, World Business Report, and gotta say you're gonna love his accent because who doesn't love a British accent? But not just that, he's a pretty smart chap as well. And he's the author of High Frequency Change, Why We Feel Like Change Happens Faster Now and What to Do About It. And that's a, that's a big, big problem today. And today we're gonna be discussing why we're actually all cyborgs, and what it means for humanity, why the future of climate change is inevitable, and yet the answer is probably local, why Tom's only remotely worried about automation and unemployment, what technologies actually scare Tom the most and why, the future of TV, entertainment, and Apple's role, how Amazon and monopolies of the future evolve and rule, voice, and possibly the world, and what we need to do with education to save humanity from itself. This is a fun one, guys. I really hope you enjoy it. And now, without further ado, I give you Tom Cheeseright. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Tom, I wanted to jump right in, and I hear you're a cyborg. I wanted to figure out why. What's the deal? <laughs> so, we have this idea about cyborgs that somehow it means implanting a chip in us or you know, replacing some part of our body with a machine. It goes back to science fiction, you know, the $6 million man. And- even before that, you know, this whole sort of Cold War idea of building human beings that can survive on the moon or a nuclear winter. But that was all predicated on the idea that in order for the bandwidth between us and the machine to be high enough for it to work, you had to actually put something inside your body. We look at how much the user interface has changed between us and machines over the last 50, 60 years. Actually, it's so slick now that even just through that interface of the touchscreen or the voice interface, it's so smooth now that the bandwidth's sufficient for us to be treated as cyborgs, and we do it without noticing. You know, I was born without a sense of direction. I can barely find my ass with both hands. And so, you know, when, when GPS comes along and I can just say, Google, get me home, 
and it does it. That's the my cyborg sense of direction. You know, likewise, my memory. You know, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't happen, and I'm not there. I've outsourced these cognitive functions, and you know, just because there's not a chip in my hand or my head, I don't think that makes me any less a cyborg. Those parts of our brain are actually degrading. So the direction, the the phone recognition, the the uh, spatially specifically, a lot of those things are starting to degrade. Is what I've heard from researchers. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about this. The evidence is fairly weak so far. There's a lot of people who want it to be true and have made a bit of a career out of it. Uh, over in the UK, I won't name her, but we have a very prominent neuroscientist who did lots of great work and then decided that she rather enjoyed being on the front page of the Daily Mail and spent a lot of time bashing computer games and phones and everything else. And actually, the, the neuroscience that suggests that behavior changes or actually the real degradation is pretty limited so far. Don't get me wrong, I think it's possible. I think if we're not using these muscles, there's a good chance that they atrophy. But if I, you know, I look at sort of young people's behavior, I, I think maybe there's a lost generation between the ages of about sort of their late 20s and uh, late 30s now for who, who dived into this stuff with abandon, had no sort of care or control about how they turned themselves over to technology. But you look at people at the generation below that, they're, they're, pretty, um, they're pretty conscious about how they use it, I've found. And, and most of the time when they're using technology, they're using it to engage in the physical world. So I'm not sure how much they're actually going to lose. I would agree. But what would happen if the internet ended tomorrow? Uh, it wouldn't be a very pleasant world for me, I have to say. <laughs> what, what, would, it, would it be straight up apocalyptic? I, I think it would from an economic point of view. I don't think, I don't think humanity as a species has, has left its ability to survive so far behind that we couldn't recover and put in place some some robust systems relatively quickly. I mean, don't get me wrong. People will die if the internet went down tomorrow. What, what, um, percent, what percentage are we talking? Because I, uh, I, know, I know a lot of people that would be like upset with going outside to grab an apple <laughs> off a tree kind of deal. Yeah. And, you know, where do you find an apple tree these days? It's not like you can go scrumping around the center of a city anymore. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I think, I think it's a small percentage. I think you'd find that actually a lot of our systems a lot of our pre-internet systems are still there in the background. We sort of bolted the internet on top of them. It's not quite replaced everything yet. Worst case scenario, cannibalism, tried and true. Ah, you know, long pig. It's very tasty, I hear. It tastes oh, like chicken. God, <laughs> God I, I can't even imagine people being pushed into those type of situations. And yet, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's so far from my experience in my comfortable middle class home, I have to say. It is, but I, I'm dabbling a bit in sci-fi now i've got a couple of novels that i'm working on getting a publisher for i, I thought you were going to say you were dabbling in cannibalism no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I had a sister now i have half a sister you guys weren't supposed to know about that no it's uh <laughs> that's part of the reason i like this podcast and i like sci-fi in general is you can bring up those topics that are controversial who survives when something like that happens Do you, yeah what are your biggest fears when it comes to technology I think you know, most of my work as a futurist is on the near future rather than the far future. And so, you know, I'm kind of focused on the, on the near future issues. I think, you know, the climate, the effects of climate change are clearly pretty proximate now. But the one that seems to be being under addressed is the economic impact of automation uh, technology, particularly cognitive automation. You know, in the UK, we were meant to have a sort of governmental panel looking at this in, in, in seriousness maybe three years ago, which if it's met at all yet, it's barely met and doesn't seem to have made many recommendations. It, it doesn't seem to be taken particularly seriously because there's a whole school of economists who say, ah, people have said, you know, with every technological revolution that there'll be job losses and this time's different and this time's going to be no different. It'll be growth, growth, growth. And I, I'm skeptical of that view. I really am. Well, you kind of have to become skeptical at some point because there's a carrying capacity of the earth in terms of how many people we can support on a resource perspective. And if you scale up those resource usages, which in essence would be scaling up GDP, either for developing countries or for first world countries getting higher levels of service from AI, then either way, we're already at an unsustainable point. Where, where yeah. can we go from here? Yeah. For, I mean, we, I think the estimates are that we top out from a population perspective back end of this century, but that's still some growth to go given the damage that we're already doing. And when you've got all the developing nations trying to get to our standard of living expanding their energy generation, expanding the manufacturing base, expanding their consumption of meat and other goods. Yeah, I think it's I think there is a, a huge onus on us actually to start moving very you know, as fast as they're moving towards us to be moving back the other way. What's a better measure than GDP then? I don't know. I think I think growth is is was a good metric for a long time. It it correlated pretty well to standards of living. 
Yeah, I don't think it necessarily does now. Uh, yeah, I think if you put growth in an equality context, you know, we, we know very clearly that unequal societies have higher crime and lower standards of living. I think actually driving towards some measure of equality, I mean, it's, it's hard to objectively measure, measure happiness um, and standard of life. But I think we do need a better metric that's going to correlate better to a quality of life in the 21st century, just as GDP did for the 20th. What about an inflationary adjusted average income divided by number of hours worked? <laughs> so you, I mean, you that, took into account how much someone was making, but not just that, because we don't want people working more. If you can make the same and work less, then you're actually improving society. Yeah, and, and you know, I think I think you, know, you bring that right down to the micro scale. There's a huge challenge to bring that sort of thinking just into the current workplace. You know, in, in Britain, productively, in predictive, particularly, we have really low productivity. You know, by European standards. Uh, we work the longest hours and deliver the absolute least. And there is a real presenteeism culture there. So even if we're not talking at this of the macro big future scale, just bring it down to the micro and re-incentivize people based on productivity and delivery rather than just showing up and looking like you're putting in the hard yards. We'd have a massive impact on people's quality of life. It would, but it's hard to do for the way that corporations are structured. What um what we've found from having urbanists on the program, people whose specific job it is to design better cities, more transportable, connected cities, ones that will be the cities of the future is, it's almost always easier to start with a new city. It's much harder to retrofit a city than it is to just build something new. Is it going to be similar with the corporations of tomorrow? You can't really retrofit this stuff, so we got to take them out back and then we can start with the new ones. <laughs> I don't want to believe so. You know, I have kind of a soft spot for big companies. They get a lot of flack. We sort of see them as the enemies, as the bad guys. I mean, historically, this is the big old, the oil companies, everybody else. But, you know, you look at the way they treat their staff, the sort of employment standards they have, the, the goodwill even some of the uglier companies have. And that's a, that's a huge resource they have there versus some of the very aggressive startups we've lauded over the last few years who don't necessarily have the best employment practices and are very rapidly spending what goodwill they have in a variety of ways. Yeah, I quite like to try and rescue some of the big companies and keep some of that historical ethos. A lot of them have a real sense of um, of stewardship, and they may not have not done the best job of it, but they have a, you know, there is a sense of stewardship in the leadership. And I think we can break them down and rebuild them. They will probably employ many fewer people. They will probably look very, very different. But I think it's very wasteful to always go through this sort of uh, you know, creative destruction, this sort of world of creative destruction, and just smash them down and start again. Because if you look at the behaviour of the most recent round of giants, they're all starting to behave just like the corporate giants of old. You know, why not change that behavior at the big scale rather than waiting for the cycle to repeat itself? Let's play devil's advocate. That has nothing to do with the growth of them. It has to do with the game they're playing. Do you have to change the game to change the incentives to change the result? I think part of that is changing how they're funded and who owns them. I think the, the cycle we've got into, you know, the annual cycle here, the quarterly cycle in the US is, is just permanently short-termist uh, and you are incentivizing the wrong sorts of behaviors purely by the nature of the cycle that you're working to. You know, again, I come back to this idea of stewardship. You know, are you building a company for sustainable success? Are you trying to build an organization that is going to have a legacy and still be delivering good value and good returns in 20, 30 years time? Or are you looking to sort of, you know, you know, churn and burn and, you know, spend your, your three years, five years as CEO maxing out that stock price and escaping before it all comes tumbling down like a house of cards. And that all of that comes right back to the shareholders and who owns these companies and what they're asking for from them. Let's talk about a small change that Douglas Rushkoff brought up that could make a big difference. So in the US and throughout most of the modern world, capital gains are taxed at a much lower rate than our traditional income. What if you were to simply switch the categorization of distributions and our dividends and stock uh, essentially capital gains when you sell it. So right now, if I own a company and I scale it a 1000x, and then I'm able to sell that I'm paying 10% capital gains on that. So i.e. Amazon wants growth at all costs, because they're able to get better economic returns after tax adjustment for their investors versus focusing on creating a business with sustainable profit and long term cash flows, which is actually what society wants, because it means you're investing in the future, not just investing in a cancerous growth now where you're pouring money into Facebook ads, even though you're not really growing, your tax just going up, but it looks all nice. Is that kind of a solution going for going for I, a distributions model? 
Yes, sadly, I think there are no solutions, no single solutions. It's a series of nudges like that, that we are around how we, we change the behavior, change the planning, change the foresight, change the expectations, change the culture, and map all that against things that actually drive behavior change, like changes to the tax system. But I think, I think that alone would probably um, be circumvented relatively rapidly one way or another. It might lead to a, you know, another set of, you know, wrong and bizarre and damaging behaviors. It's about putting changes like that inside the culture of a much broader set of behaviors. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I took a brief from a, from a new client last week, uh, an, an academic institution, uh, a big academic institution who wanted, you know, to take the work they'd done about the future put it in the context of a view of the future of education, which is why they came to me. But also the bit they really wanted to work with me on is how do we take that view of the future and translate it into a set of behaviours that start us delivering it and how we can measure progress in that direction. Now, I think that's a fascinating challenge when you scale that up to the, you know, let's face it, what is an entirely global economy now. You can't, or it's very hard to just make these changes at a national scale. You're talking about really shifting a global culture. Is a big part of the problem that people think a future is set and they have to prepare for it versus thinking they have the power to create the future? I think maybe we ought to be showing Terminator 2 in schools if that's the case. You know, you've got to listen to Sarah Connor. There's no fate but what we make. Uh, yeah, I think there is a there is a sort of fatalist aspect to this. I think some people do think that. I think some people are also what you might call sort of naively optimistic. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a long-term optimist, a short-term pessimist. I think we've got a pretty hard 20 years ahead. I think lots of people are just blind to the future. I mean, they're genuinely so head down doing what they do today that they have this sort of vague idea that tomorrow will be all right. I've just got to get through today first. And we see this at all levels. You know, one of my clients is Profix, a, a Canadian software company. We surveyed chief finance officers and finance directors around the world. And we found that two-thirds admitted that their company budget does not map to their strategy. So when they're writing strategy and they're not translating that into budget numbers to help them deliver it, or if they are, they're only doing so at the highest level. So even at a corporate level, we're not thinking clearly about the future beyond the next 12 months and putting you know, wood behind the arrow to actually deliver against those objectives. And it's, it's the same for us as individuals. We think very poorly about the future. Yeah, we had somebody on here, uh, Brian Alexander, and he was saying they did a poll of of college professors and asked them what their day would be like in 20 years. And it was exactly the same day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, it's hard to get your head around change. You know, I think it's, we, we look back and we, and we certainly have this sense of, you know, accelerated change now. It doesn't seem to translate though into an understanding that we have to be thinking differently about what tomorrow is going to look like. I mean, I've just, I haven't actually released the results of this yet. But, you know, I've just surveyed 2,000 adults in the UK and asked them whether they feel like change is happening faster now. And sort of, you know, above a certain age, the numbers are incredibly high. It's the vast majority of the population. It falls a little bit as you get younger because you've got less to compare it to. But, yeah, but above a certain age, the vast majority of people feel like change is happening faster now. But this hasn't translated into a change of behavior to say, well, actually, if change is happening faster, I've got to do something differently tomorrow than I do today. You also got to take into account the fact that as people age, they become more conservative and less able to adapt. I imagine that would skew it slightly, but still, yeah, change is happening much faster with mounted exponential technologies. Yeah, but this, this comes back to something I think you've talked about on your podcast before, this, this sort of shift towards lifelong learning. I think um, yeah, the, the ability to sort of you know, learn, unlearn and relearn. Yeah, I think we've got to get that into our culture for people of all ages that actually you are you're going to be economically useful and frankly driven to be economically useful well into your 70s um, for the near future, you know, in the near future. And, you know, the chances are that what you were doing when you are 20 is not still going to be a job at that point. So, you know, we've got to get over this sort of late life conservatism and, and, and sticking to what you know uh, and, and become a sort of, you know, a race of neophiles again, ready to learn at, at a moment's notice. What about a universal basic education where if you did become unemployed, the government would put you up uh, if you were willing to learn something and you could get a very basic subsistence living while also learning something new in university and trade school, et cetera, to either replace what you were currently doing or up-level yourself. So, so I heard a fantastic idea along these lines. I, I was speaking at a conference up at Glen Eagles, the, uh, the golf course for the uh, telecoms industry, and one of the hosts there was talking to me about an idea, a paper he'd written that say, uh, you know, rather than sort of universal basic income or uh, you just basically get a twenty thousand pound, twenty thousand dollar fund when you are born, 
I wouldn't cover much education at a high school or at a university level in the US, but in the UK, you know, that covers that will cover uh, most of a university level education. And you, you get it when you're born and you can spend it on education at any point in your life, whether you're training or retraining, you effectively got this fund there to cover the education. You know, maybe combined with it with a slightly smarter welfare system that accepts people are going to have these fallow years where they have to retrain. You know, I think that's a really good idea. Although, you know, partly we also have to recognize that not all of these jobs are going to need formal training. It's going to be about a set of aptitudes, a set of transferable skills, and you're going to be learning on the job because nobody's done it before. So nobody's there to teach you. Which means it's real hard to sell as a course, but they'll try to figure it out anyways. <laughs> I'm sure there will be one on Udemy at some point. <laughs> so w- we've talked a little bit about automation and how we're not really sure what's coming. And there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of fear. Where do you sit on that end of the spectrum and why? Uh, I'm more conservative than some in terms of what I think the net losses are like to be, likely to be. You know, the, the top end, I think the Oxford Martin Institute said something like 45, 49% of jobs are susceptible to automation. That's not meaning they're going to go, but, you know, they're susceptible to. Whereas down at the other end, you've got estimates of 9 to 14% from the likes of the OECD. You know, I sit in that sort of 15 to 20% range. I see it hard to see. I find it hard to see how we can create anywhere near as many jobs as we're going to destroy in the near future. I mean, you look at the, the hundreds of thousands of jobs that are already going in retail in the UK. You know, we employ a million people in call centers over here, you know, jobs that can be better done. And I, I mean, objectively better and preferred by the caller, by a machine you know, in the very near future. And it's hard to see how we generate jobs that look like that for that group of people you know, at all, and certainly not within the time period that they're going to see that disruption. Not just preferred by the caller. Let's face it, no one wants to be in a call center in terms of answering calls. It's almost universally hated for yeah, absolutely. both sides. Although I think that's in part down to the, the way that the economics of call centers today. You know, what, what's left of the call center, the rump of the call center, if you like, is the high value calls, the ones where you're actually able to do care that the sort of third line support where the automated processes have been exhausted and you really need a human being. And I think those jobs are actually quite good fun. You get to engage with someone and solve their problems and make their day better. But most call centers, uh, that's not the experience. And you know, when you're doing that, you can, when someone's doing that high value stuff for them, you can afford to pay them more to do it. Do we need, do we need the jobs though? So this is, this is a, something I was talking about with Brian Alexander is I could see us getting to the point in, human automation, where at least in the US, we reached a dystopic utopia where we had achieved such high levels of automation, energy was close enough to free that we could produce everything we wanted. And we'd automated everyone out of existence in terms of, well, you don't need a job anymore. But I'm sorry, we can't give you this stuff because we don't do sharing here. Is that is that a real a realistic threat? Is Europe better positioned because they're at least have some type of socialism? Yeah, although in the UK, we're running as far and as fast away from that as we possibly can at the moment. I wish that were not the case. Potentially, I think that socialism, though, or I mean, you know, really centre left, you know, position is predicated on industry. It's predicated on, on an economic base that, you know, if we see this sort of fractalization of wealth, which seems likely in automation, if a small number of people can do the work of many more and capture a larger portion of the income, there's some pretty radical changes required in order to support something that looks at all like today's economy. And I think, you know, the reality is, is we're unlikely to go through a radical change when these changes come. I think we'll go through it. We'll use a series of sticking plasters to hold something that looks vaguely like the current economy together. And that is, you know, changes to the tax system, perhaps some form of UBI, although I think, you know, most of the schemes trialed so far don't really justify the name. They're, they're not really an income that you can live on. They're a sort of, you know, a small supplement. Um, and, and perhaps actually some revaluing of the work that we desperately underpay or don't pay at all right now. And I think that's probably the biggest critical shift is that we've, we've, uh, r- very rapidly devalued service to the community and the family over the recent years. You know, we don't reward people for public service, uh, anything like we used to. And that's true of, you know, doctors, nurses, teachers, people actually in work. But it's also particularly true of people who are looking after the home, raising children, you know, c- caring for elderly parents or sick relatives or, you know, children who need more support. And, you know, somehow as a society, I think we absolutely have to revalue that work. We'll have to work the burden of which mostly falls on women. How? 
We're not easily is the honest answer. I think it's we've come so far down a particular path of a sort of binding value purely to economic activity that I think it um, it's unlikely to happen quickly. I do see signs of it though, and it's happening in small grassroots places where the sort of the where the welfare state and local authorities have pulled back in the UK under the current sort of austerity budgets, where you know local councils in the UK that run cities and towns have lost half their funding in the UK, half their staff, half their funding typically. So a lot of services have been pulled back and the community has stepped in. The community has taken over the running of libraries and parks and public spaces. You know, they've adopted poorly maintained train stations. They've started to build outreach programs, care programs, even things that are looking a little bit like Saturday funds. These were sort of, um, you know, uh, cooperative welfare systems that predated the welfare state in the UK. You know, all of these things are starting to come back in the absence of the state. But it's going to take a very long time to get to that point where we're rebuilding community to an extent that it fills the role we've either relied on private enterprise for or an, an enlarged state for. Is that the possible future that we just take out the inefficiency of government and use that to fuel our future? I think it's potentially some of the inefficiency of central government. Yeah, we have a very old democracy here. Yours is relatively old too. They were built for a different age and a different pace. They're built for a different scale when actually, you know, you needed to operate at this, um, this sort of national scale in order to have strength and power and international clout. But actually, it's made them very unresponsive to local needs. You know, what the people of, you know, Detroit versus Atlanta might need is very different. What the people of London versus Manchester might need is very different. And so I'm a big believer in, in, in devolving power down, devolving tax raising powers down, devolving management of healthcare, public services down further, bringing them back closer to communities who can then engage with them much more easily and, you know, and take some ownership. You know, I still believe in some things that have to be done by the state. I, you know, I think there are, mar- there are places in the UK where we've brought in markets and competition which just don't work because there is no true competition and all the regulation in the world doesn't work to protect the consumer in those situations. Yeah, there are roles for the state and there are roles for the market. And it's, it's about finding the balance between those two, but also you know, massively decentralizing power and pushing it back towards people. I definitely agree. I think, at least in the US, a lot of times when you hear something like that, it's, oh, don't worry, we're not going to control the telecom lines. We're just going to grant the monopoly to this company and let them build it. And by the way, we'll, we'll pay them to build it kind of deal. It's it's offshooting the responsibility without actually making a remotely responsible decision. You know, we have this bizarre situation with energy in the UK, where the margin between what we generate and what we consume has getting, been getting narrower and narrower every year. We're turning off old nuclear power stations. We've not built any new gas ones recently, and we've not built any new nuclear. And while renewables are coming up, we don't have any sort of storage framework for that energy yet. So yeah, we can't rely entirely on renewables. And so, you know, rather than doing what they would have done in the past, you know, the government would have said, right, we'll raise some bonds, we'll raise some money, or we'll just, you know, we'll just raise some debt, basically, and we'll build some nuclear power stations. We went to you know, the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund and said, um, you yeah, know, how much do we have to pay you back in order for you to build us a nuclear power station? And the answer was, we want twice the current strike price per unit of electricity for the next 35 years, which effectively shifts the burden onto the consumer you know, expensive energy for 35 years in order to stop us having blackouts and brownouts in the mid-2020s. You know, that's a situation where the market just doesn't help. The government just has to step up and build something. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy world in a lot of ways. I know you've, <laughs> talk, you've talked about the future of smart versus living cities, and I wanted to dive into that. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm a geek, right? You know, I'm a mechatronic engineer by training, um, and, you know, I love technology, as you can probably tell. I'm sort of surrounded by 3D printers and, you know, microchips and all sorts of things. So I get excited about smart cities and their potential. But if you look at what's been driving them for the last few years, like why are people investing in smart cities? It's fundamentally economic. It's about saving money. It comes back to this austerity agenda, which has been in place across Europe. And whether you go and visit you know, Santander, which is an incredible smart city demonstrator, or Milton Keynes in the UK or Manchester's recent project. Fundamentally, it's about reducing the cost of operation of a city, usually with some sort of public relations, environmental messaging sprinkled over the top of it, and maybe a bit about quality of life. And I think we've got to move beyond that now. You know, those things are important. You know, we do, we could make cities more efficient, more energy efficient, greener and cheaper to run. 
But I think you can't go past the role of a joy in a city. You know, we've got to incorporate much more of those human aspects when we think about this. And this comes back to what you were saying about you know, urbanists and new cities versus established ones. You know, new cities that have been built, particularly smart ones, have been pretty soulless. They seem to pay fairly little regard to actually how people live and the way people interact and engage with the city. And, and established cities have that. You know, a living city both has to have both that joy and that humanity to it, but it also has to be uh, genuinely smart in that the infrastructure itself adapts to people's needs. What I mean by that is, you know, smart cities tend to be an overlay. Let's measure, monitor, control the things that we already have. It's a Stalin city. Right. You know, yeah, it's a smart Stalin, right? Whereas a living city actually adapts the fundamental infrastructure to people's changing needs. It comes back to this rate of change. So you know, a good example might be, imagine you have a, a smart office block, a genuinely smart office block. It's driven by an AI. It's peppered with sensors built into the concrete, the tables, the chairs, the windows, everything else. And it starts to understand the behavior of its tenants and its occupiers. And it notices that everybody uses the side entrance, not the front one. And this causes a bottleneck in the morning. And it says, okay, well, I'll build a bigger entrance on the side and maybe shrink the front one because I don't need that one to be so big. And so it changes the turnstiles and it widens the entrance using a sort of 3D printer or some sort of modular construction techniques. And perhaps more interestingly, you know, it changes the shape of the working environment. Actually, these people need quiet. They need space. They keep hiding away. Why don't I build more uh, you know, private rooms and fewer sort of open plan space? Or just on a day-to-day basis, you imagine there's an alleyway down next to it uh, and the, the bulbs break or the power goes out down that alleyway so it's dark one night and it looks dangerous. You know, the building could notice and illuminate the offices on that side of the building to illuminate the alleyway and keep people safe. And it's about these sort of live interactions, turning the, the buildings into living things which grow and evolve to support our needs rather than just trying to minimize the cost of operating them as we do today. Let's play devil's advocate. A lot of that stuff sounds nice to have, but overly expensive and not all that important. It's kind of like over-optimizing where you decide, oh, I'm going to go learn French in case I ever learn, move to France. And now that could be great because you want to learn French or it could be considered a total waste of time because you never actually do it and take any action on it. And that's that's a lot of what I hear when I hear people discussing a lot of the sensors we just have to have in these smart buildings that have almost no purpose. So let's bring it back to the business model for buildings. And this is something I've had uh, discussions slash arguments with property companies and architects about is the way we build buildings today is entirely wrong. So everybody in the sort of the seven step process does their little bit and then gets out as fast as they can with their small margin on the lifespan of that building. And what we end up with is, is assets that age that don't necessarily continue to meet the needs of the people in that city. It's wasteful. We knock stuff down. We have contractors who are operating on an average of minus 0.5% margin in the UK. It's, it is a highly risky business with lots of large companies going bust. And the alternative I say is we rip up the rule book. We stop building things like we used to. We stop building cities like we used to. And every partner in that process is invested for the lifetime of that building. They're there. To, they will take returns out of the utility of that building across its entire lifespan. You know, and suddenly the investment model for how you build that building and why you put those sensors in looks different because what you're trying to do is maximize utility for its lifespan right down to its deconstruction, its decommissioning. And everybody in the process is getting paid against that rather than everyone trying to get in, get out and make their buck in that, you know, the short space of time that they're engaged. And once you do that, you know, that level of knowledge about how the building's used, about how the asset's used starts to make a lot more sense. I think so. But then you're playing with a risk adjusted return type deal where People are thinking much more in terms of let's go for the higher risk, faster reward versus the potential lower risk. But it's like with venture capital. If you're investing in companies, you expect one out of 10 of them to return the previous nine investments because they're almost all going to go to bust. You're playing an exponential game. Is I mean, that- one, if you're doing one out of 10, you're doing pretty well, I think. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think but that's that's a general rule for the start of thinking we have to shift towards if we are going to you know avert things like yeah absolutely well i think it's probably too late to avert some level of climate change catastrophe but yeah that that sort of short-termist thinking and the behaviors that drives are part of our problem now and so we have to find ways to incentivize that longer uh, return that that stewardship that sustainable success rather than get in get out for maximum return yeah it's a it's a very hard nut to crack so to speak 
Yeah. As I say, it's not going to happen quickly. No, especially because how fast do you build and knock down buildings, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company that we love and helped get our podcast design covers for disruptors. Now, if you guys need a logo, if you're starting a business, or if you want to have a better brand logo and presence, maybe you designed something terrible in the future or terrible in the past, and you just need to redo that and get something incredible made. Well, here's how you do it. You go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D. They'll generate thousands of logos for you from designers around the world. You don't pay anything. It's totally free. And if you find one that absolutely knocks your socks off, then you go, you buy that bad boy, and suddenly you have an incredible brand for your business. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash brand crowd for more details and to see what they come up with for you and your business. Hope you enjoy. Now back to the episode. So I know you've talked before about the future of television, Apple's role in it, and what the future of media looks like. I was curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is kind of forming, it's one of the strands that's forming the basis of my next book. I shouldn't be talking about my next one because my first one doesn't come out for two months, but I'm writing about choice at the moment. And I'm absolutely fascinated by choice. And, and you know, television is a really good your microcosm is this and Apple's recent announcements. Yeah. Yeah. Apple's announcements got huge airplay and coverage because of Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey and this idea of, you know, where they're going to be competing with Netflix and sinking huge amounts of money into production, you know, something which still isn't entirely clear yet. But buried down in there was a much more interesting announcement for me about the television app and about how Apple is effectively going to moderate and curate your choices how you discover content wherever it might come from. And that, that for me is a, a massive future battleground for brands, not just for television, not just for other forms of media, but for everything we buy and use. It's who is the, who are the new middle men and women or middle AIs, quite frankly, who are going to broker our access, who are going to help us discover, who are help, going to help us navigate the absolute morass of content and choices we have out there. And you're starting to see people make interesting moves in this direction. You know, Apple's moved towards being saying, you know, we're going to be the curator of your watched experience. Um, and we're going to recommend stuff towards to you. We're going to direct things to you. That is an incredibly powerful position. You know, just like in many ways, the, the voice interface Alexa is really a, you know, a shot across the bounds to say, you know, we put an Alexa in your home. That is the broker for which brands you buy. You know, I did some work for Kellogg's, the cereals brand, and we had a guy from Google there who used to be at Amazon whose house is full of Alexa devices. And it had shifted the brand of cornflakes that he buys from own brand cornflakes to Kellogg's cornflakes. Because when you say to, and I'm not going to say her name again in case she wakes up, but when you say to a voice assistant, order me some cornflakes, she doesn't know to order the own brand ones. She automatically orders the branded ones. Now, right now, that's just because it's a default. In the future, that becomes a really interesting marketing battleground that when somebody doesn't specify, what do you order? You fast forward 10 years when we're probably all wearing some sort of smart glasses, which have got uh, breathing sensors, you know, heart rate sensors, um, galvanic skin response sensors, and they know how we react to goods. And they can start to make decisions about what brands we want based on that information. What well, comes back to the, the AAA plumbing where you try to be at the front of the phone book? With, uh, with Alexa especially, Amazon's going to own all of that because they make their own products. Why would they ever push someone else's? Well, I don't know that they would. I mean, for a start, they may get paid to push somebody else's. That's a possibility. You know, there's an interesting sort of, you know, sort of brokerage angle there, almost like the, uh, you know, the starters do now. People are shifting a lot of spending from Google ads into, into marketing on Amazon. Uh, you know, maybe that money goes directly to Amazon for the, the digital, digital equivalent of shelf promotion. You know, where you start to take on their own brands. You, know, you, you walk into a supermarket, the own brands haven't displaced the Kellogg's, the, the branded goods. They sit alongside them. They're a differentiated proposition. Do we have to regulate against that? Because it is essentially a mafia plus monopoly that in essence is incredibly immoral of a, a type of a position to build. I don't know. I, I, I'm a bit of a skeptic on that front. I mean, don't be wrong. You know, I think Amazon's scale is dangerous and threatening for uh, a lot of organizations. But you know, we, we, there are competitors out there coming up. There are alternatives out there coming up. There are many ways that that monopoly could be damaged, broken without necessarily regulatory intervention. I'm not against it. I'm not against it in principle, uh, if it gets to that point. But, uh, but I'm, I'm less 
um, invested in this idea that Amazon or Facebook or any of the others are unbeatable. I think they can absolutely be competed with. Well, Facebook can because it's a miserable experience that everyone hates. But <laughs> but but Amazon Amazon's people don't even view it as an experience. They view it as a default. And in a lot of ways, it is with the infrastructure they have. I would say Amazon of the of the big three, really, or big four, are the most in a position to have a pure unnoticed monopoly where they are the consumption for everything you do. And I don't see how you defeat that when they have their own marketplace and their own products. My my background is Amazon. No, sure. But let me give you a counterpoint to that. There's one thing Amazon has been trying to do for years and has still failed at. Groceries. No, discovery. Uh, Amazon is the place I go if I know what I want, or to be fair, or AliExpress or eBay, depending on what it is I'm buying. But if I don't know what I want, Amazon's a horrible experience. Like bricks and mortar retail still beats out Amazon for me for the discovery experience for things I don't when I don't know what I want. And that, I think, is an enormous opportunity because I don't think it's a it's necessarily impossible to do it digitally. And yet Amazon's tried for years and still fails at it. So do they just need to buy Pinterest? Um, Is Pinterest the right experience? I don't think it necessarily is. It's it's certainly closer. but I don't think, you know, I think, you know, it, it's an example of, of one area where Amazon could be outcompeted. And I think there are absolutely others. I think other people could build a slicker experience and just leverages Amazon, leverage Amazon's infrastructure, reducing their margin. I think there are opportunities to intervene in terms of the, the decision making. You know, I think, I think banks and mobile phone providers, you know, mobile operators have an opportunity to be the providers of our, of our choice AIs, our digital assistants, if you like. Um, which could be, you know, if, if we were paying a fee for them, could be genuinely independent. You know, once you insert that between us and Amazon, you know, and Amazon's only the default choice because it's the easiest, it's the lowest possible friction option. You know, once you insert something else doing the discovery and selection for us, then all other options, all other retailers suddenly become much more competitive. Somewhat, but your margin's my opportunity and no one can play that game more than the person with the biggest checkbook. I don't know. I get and you know, I think constantly we we see these people who look unbeatable, and I think they absolutely can be beaten. People will find a new paradigm, a new way of doing things, which allows them to insert themselves somewhere in that process and shave off. It won't happen in one big go. No one's going to come and knock Amazon out with a single punch. They're going to shave uh, slices off their revenue. Just as happens with banking. I mean, banking's a really good example. You know, you know, twenty years ago, you know, the the banks missed the card not present payment opportunity. And people like Cybersource, now sort of part of Visa, came along and built businesses doing that card not present processing. You know, banks then had a really good business doing card present processing, the streamlined network in the UK. And the likes of the Squares and the Isettles came along and started to shave profitable bits off there. We've seen it with foreign exchange. We've seen it with um, stock trading. You know, companies are starting to shave many, many small profitable slivers off the banks, shaving them back to a much less dominant position. And I think exactly the same will happen with Amazon. But you're dealing with a dinosaur. That, I mean, yeah. when you think about banks and financial institutions, A, who would ever want to have some type of AI assistant from them? Because A, do you trust your bank? And B, do you think they're remotely competent? I would say no for both in almost all instances. You, who- and, I might, you and I might say no for both. The level of trust among the general population in banks still remains incredibly high. They don't like them, but they trust them. I guess we'll we'll agree to disagree on that one. So, <laughs> so, so cl- climate climate change. Where are we headed? And should I buy a boat? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the uh, what the water table in Atlanta's like, but uh, uh, you know, I live in a place called Levenshulme, and Hume means swamp. So, I'm certainly uh, investing in a sump pump for my cellar, if nothing else. Um, yeah, I, I don't see how we get in under two degrees at the current rate. I mean, yeah, I'm no climate scientist, but you know, from my observation, we've done relatively little to combat it so far most of the the sort of most intense campaigning and ire has been directed at the consumer and changes in consumer behavior when actually you know uh, and, and then at industry when actually you know, government has done relatively little in terms of what it could do you know, the, the ways it could influence you know our emissions and, and for, you know, for me i think if, if we are going to avert, you know, serious disaster, we've got to be putting a lot more pressure on, on government to make bold decisions rather than just keep beating consumers up for, you know, using one too many plastic bags or, you know, not using a reusable coffee cup. It's, it, it, it's, it's about so much more than that at the grand scale. Yeah, we're playing the, we're not playing the 80-20, that's for sure. 
In terms yeah. of in terms of politicians, do we have to overhaul the entire system and get rid of the four or six year type term limits, which are incredibly short term and almost impossible to focus on the future? I think two things are happening here. One is I think there is uh, increasing uh, disgruntlement and apathy with the established systems, but I also see a lot of people just bypassing them. You know, the the, the general relevance of national governments is declining. Um, it's again, it's, it's it's a slow trend. It's not going to happen overnight. But people are rather than waiting for government permission, people are starting to do things in spite of government. Maybe it's maybe it's Facebook's move fast and break things approach translated into sort of civic activism. You know, come back to these sort of community projects I was talking about earlier. You know, as the state retracts necessarily because of austerity, you know, people are starting to step in and finding different ways of doing things. You know, in in the UK, our metro areas, our big suburban regions, so London, Manchester, Birmingham. You know, the last but one government instituted uh, sort of executive mayors, and they're slowly starting to bring their weight to bear, carving you know greater power out from the state. I, my ideal is that we move towards a sort of you know internet type system where we have a you know national governments effectively and international government effectively establishes the framework, the rules, the standards. But within those standards, you know, the the, the nature of the operations low locally and hyper locally are much more free and open and free to meet the needs of the people living there and actually the you know the choices and behaviors of the people living there you know i, th- I think you know slowly but surely we 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 couldn't move any more centralized in many ways uh, without moving becoming sort of an entirely totalitarian state i think slowly but surely we're moving back in the direction with some big hiccups along the way 50 years from now do we have more or less governments than we have today and by roughly how much i think we have more in terms of numbers of representatives i think you know it could be twice as many I think because more people are engaged, possibly on a part-time basis, but we have less centralization. I'd, I'd like in 50 years, I'd like to see half as much power in terms of tax raising, budget spending, control over school curricula, etc. I'd like to see half as much uh, centralized. I'd like to see national governments as effectively as a standard setting and a semi-sort of oversight body, but you know, maybe 50% of that power shifted into local and metro areas. What about China? They're centralizing and it's going seemingly quite well. Uh, yeah, I think it's a spectacular example, but it's, it's such a different experience. You know, you're, you're effectively uh, you know, urbanizing a rural, rural economy at a vastly accelerated rate. I think, you know, I, don't, I think it's pretty inevitable that at some point China ends up going in the same direction. It's, it's the centralized mode works well for them at the moment, maybe not works well for everybody there, but in terms of trying to do things at scale, excuse me, quickly, I think it works very well. But actually, even there, you know, you're starting to see a lot of power pushed out to the states and the provinces. You know, for example, some of the investment funds they have for uh, automation under their program to increase the quality of manufacturing and shift the perception of China from low from low cost to high value. Um, you know, a lot of that is administrated administrated uh, locally uh, by the provinces, and then you're getting you're getting differential behaviors there. I find the I find the reference to China as low cost manufacturing that most people think of to just be so laughable. It's funny because the cost is much better, but the quality versus the US manufacturer, I would probably take the Chinese one every day because they actually have to work for it. I've worked with factories in both and the US ones don't even respond. Right. I mean, yeah, it's you and I know that it's not accurate, but there is certainly a a perception internally in China that the the global perception of the the country is 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 for a low cost. And as as they're creating this growing middle class, they want to create more high value jobs Rather than your large numbers of low-value jobs, and so part of she, part of that is shifting the global perception of the country, but also um, you know creating using automation to, to to drive people up the management tier and allow fewer people to do more with less. Yes, but I also think they're also doing, at least from my understanding, they're trying to also keep people employed in terms of creating jobs, possibly at a a net negative in terms of financial but at a net positive in terms of social cohesion. Uh, and, you know, and that's demonstrable, right? We know that if you've got two you know, identical communities uh, with identical levels of poverty, but one effectively in work and one out of work, the, the, level, the, the behaviors are completely different. You know, people need to feel socially useful and engaged. And I think actually we have a big problem with, with that in the West. You know, and if you read uh, David Graeber's book, you know, Bullshit Jobs, you know, he, he surveyed thousands of people I found that 40% thought their job added no value, like literally added no sort of real value to humanity or society and was kind of unnecessary. You know, I think we have a big problem here with actually people who are 
you know, without us even consciously making up jobs to keep people engaged in the face of automation, we already have a problem where people don't necessarily feel as socially useful as perhaps they'd want to. How much of this is driven by our education system where the teacher gives you homework and after the first two problems, you kind of get the whole freaking thing and there's 30 more problems and we just need bullshit work to fill people up. How much of that is just being translated into the business world versus putting people in a come up with a solution or solve these creative problems type mode? Uh, yeah, I, I'm a, a big believer that we need to fairly radically change education. You know, in many ways, we've gone backwards in the UK over the last few years. We've had a more rigid curriculum, more closely tied to your sort of um, uh, math, science and English, uh, a big move away from arts and subjects where you can actually not, I wouldn't call them creative subjects, but I'd call them subjects where it's easier to teach creative skills. You know, they're great frameworks for teaching people to do problem solving uh, and iteration and adaptation. Uh, and yeah, you know, personally, I, I'd, I'd like to see the, the curriculum. A, I'd like to see teachers freed up to, to be more creative with the curriculum um, and teach to meet the needs of both their pupils uh, and their local community. Uh, and I'd like to see a real focus on, on, on three core skills. I mean, this comes out of a project we did, I did with the Institute of Chartered Accountants a few years ago. We were looking at the future of education. We, we came up with this idea of the three C's, the, the ability to curate, create and communicate. Effectively, the, the fundamental skills that we need from people in the future, ability to discover and qualify information, for which we use curate as a shorthand, the ability to synthesize something new, either iteratively or recombinatively or originally, and the ability to communicate, the ability to sell that idea, that thing you've created back to your colleagues or customers or peers, whoever it might be. And I think you know, so little of the curriculum um, is we, we teach subjects for their own sake. Whereas you know, on the grounds that people are going into a knowledge economy, and there is no knowledge economy. I mean, knowledge is a lot. Knowledge is a commodity itself. You know, we, what we need is people with the skills to manipulate that knowledge, and we should treat knowledge as the framework in which you teach skills rather than an end in its own right. And I think we should be mixing in terms of what kids are learning, even if you do want to have a set classes curriculum. For instance, you take a, a bajillion English classes, and you learn a lot of old classics about really things that are irrelevant, that aren't really looking forward at all. What if we replaced just one of those years with sci-fi? How much di different would people think? And they're still learning English. Yeah, as, as a massive sci-fi fan, I, I, that, I would have enjoyed that a great deal I, rather than yet another Jane Austen. But um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think that's part of it. I think you're right. You know, we need to, to cross fertilize. You, know, you look back at Nobel Prize winners for the last n years, and you, so many times you will find that as well as being an incredible scientist. They also played, you know, um, top grade violin or were a jazz pianist or bongos, whatever it may be. You know, I think it's so much of, of the, the skills we need, the problems we need to solve require this combination of both the technical skills, but also this sort of free thinking and this, these, these creative skills, which, as I say, aren't necessarily bound to the art subjects, but the art subjects are a fantastic framework in which to teach them. How do we train the way that people think about that in terms of right now, if you have a kid and they want to go into something artsy fartsy, as a lot of people would say, that's, <laughs> that's looked down upon because you're going to be the freaking starving artist on the side of the road hawking your paintings, right? I, you know, I think we have to point people at the size of the, you know, the film industry or the games. And I think it's all the games industry overtook the film industry in the UK recently. So did industry. Apple. Apple is bigger than all of Hollywood combined. Uh, you know, I mean, I think... Uh, and we point them back at these at these incredible success stories. You know, people who who took that creative thinking that's fundamentally attached to the arts and applied it in a scientific or engineering or coding context and built the next great thing or changed the world. Yeah, you know, certainly with my own kids, I've got two you know two girls, and and you know, we're absolutely focused on you know the fact that you know one minute they might be making an Easter bonnet or, you know, doing some pictures or whatever. And the next minute, my, you know, my nine-year-old is designing furniture for her doll's house on Tinkercad. You know, it's, it's, it's that balance of skills. It is. How do we deal with the, the woman in tech issue in terms of women being seemingly held back in a lot of higher paying and better fields by whatever society or whatever the cause? Yeah, by men. I mean, I think it's a short answer a lot of the time. We don't necessarily know we're doing it. But I think there are a lot of behaviours, conscious and unconscious, which, which don't help. Yeah, I think that I think I, I do believe that given the remaining differential and the disparity, that actually you have to do quite a lot of sort of affirmative action, quite a lot of interventionist stuff. But actually, you know, we need to be a bit more practical and a bit less vocal. 
There are so many, you know, lists of, you know, 93 great women in history of science. Whereas actually what we really need is the next 93 great women in science. And I think we put a lot of the burden on the existing women, you know, on science communicators to try and, you know, attract more women to apply. When actually once women do go to university, they never, you know, they don't actually go into uh, study because of the cultures they're entering. Yeah, I think it's about we've done the easy bits. We've done the communication. We've done the making it sort of attractive on the surface. It's about the hard decisions now. It's about doing the barefaced analysis of our own working cultures. Um, it's about you know, looking at our own behavior as men, particularly, and saying, what are the things we are doing that are still you know, dissuading some of the best people from working in these environments? And I think, I think a lot of us are still guilty. And I include myself in that. You know, there's always, I find myself saying things, doing things that in retrospect, I beat myself up about because they contribute to that culture. I heard a really interesting study and it was from one of the heads of Uber. And they were looking at the disparity between uh, driver incomes in terms of male and female drivers. And they were trying to adjust as much as possible to figure out what is actually causing this. And at the end, it was something like 9%. And what they found were things that were almost unchangeable. They were societal things and physiological things. Men drove faster, so they ended up having more rides. <laughs> men, men were willing to work at shittier hours, which means they were able to get in when there was the higher traffic things. How do you, how do you deal with that? Because I feel like a lot, at least a large percentage of the difference, which doesn't get talked about enough, are the decisions people make and how they act, not necessarily the circumstances. I don't know. I think it's hard to, to, to dissociate the two. I mean, you know, things that are hard to change. Yeah. Why won't women drive at difficult hours? You know, there are some pretty good obvious reasons you might think that's true. Whether that is in terms of, you know, the burden of childcare being placed on them for historical reasons, you know, whether that is because they just don't feel safe. You know, I think, you know, even what look like intractable problems, I think we can do things about. Again, these are slow, sticky, thorny problems, though. We're talking about, you know, thousands of years of embedded culture, uh, which we're going to have to slowly shift. You know, and all we can do is sort of, you know, is, is stick the lever in and start pushing on it and slowly watch it go. But we, we've just got to keep pushing at it and, and you're not, I think you, you can't deny difference, right? You know, men and women are different. You know, there are going to be different behaviours. To, to deny it is to deny the basis of, of, of sexism and misogyny in the first place. But, you know, we shouldn't be expecting absolute equality, but we should absolutely be tackling all of those things that are societal, which do, uh, you know, sort of uh, differentially affect women negatively. I find it hilarious that for some people it's taboo to say that men and women are different. It's it's to, it's just, okay, how do we deal with hard things that we do find in science? For, the, for instance, the fact that men and women are in fact different. The fact that no matter what given population you take, whether that's residents of the state of New York, whether that's African Americans and Hispanic individuals or Caucasians, that you will find differences. There will be differences in height. There will be differences in intelligence. There will be differences in speed on a population level average because ancestrally, they evolved differently. How do we deal with those when we find the things that we don't want to find and then go against the narrative? Uh, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I like truth. I like reality. I, I believe in objective reality. I think you can't, you, you've always got to be open-minded when, when objective reality comes and smacks you in your face and, and, and challenges your views. You, you, you've got to listen at that point. You've got to adapt. And, you know, we come back to this point about education. You know, I think one of the things we really have to teach people is how to be wrong, you know, how to understand when you are wrong, how to learn, how to change your views. And at the moment, we vilify people for changing their mind. You know, we, we vilify politicians for, for you know, the, the, the dreaded U-turn. You know, we vilify politicians for changing their mind about something, even if all the evidence they had at one point was said one way and all the evidence they had at a later date was another. We call them hypocrites. It's like, no, we have to, we should absolutely lionize people who accept that they were wrong about things, take new evidence and change their minds. I would agree. I think it's more people coming from a perspective of cynicism where you get four different tweets and each one of those tweets is a completely different opinion. And that's actually more or less just in a growth or a continuation of how politics has always been. Oh, it's great to meet you. I will vote for this. Oh, it's great to meet you. Don't worry. We aren't voting for that kind of deal. <laughs> We, no one trusts politicians because in general, they're scumbags. But this also comes back to this idea that, that there is a, I mean, I, I, having just said, I believe in an, an objective truth and reality, like truth is also often very complex. 
Like these things, you know, these, these difficult subjects we're talking about are usually not simple. That is why people do PhDs in them and study them for their entire lifetimes. You know, I think we, we, we are, um, you know, part of our sort of short termist instant culture is that we are very prone to looking for simple answers. And often there are just not simple answers and we should be trained and educated to accept nuance and complexity and not think that somebody else who takes the same set of evidence and comes back with a different nuanced view is necessarily the villain or the bigot or whatever else it may be. You know, these things are complicated. I heard a really interesting episode of the Skeptoid podcast, and he was talking about vaccine denial and how people always, and climate change as well, climate change denial, how people, when they try to convince someone of something, they always go for the factual argument. But we're we're human beings. We're, we're not wired to care about the facts. We're wired to care about our values. So does this align with my supposed values of naturalism, my supposed values of this or that? And that the question is, and what I'm kind of saying is, you can't convince someone by giving them better facts because it's very easy to ignore or look against the facts. What you can do instead is to explain how what you're saying applies to their values. For instance, with the vaccine thing. Yeah. Get, vaccinate your kids because then their body's natural immune system will be able to fight off disease versus having to go to a doctor to get these medicines because you see this isn't actually natural kind of positioning things differently how do we position things differently i think it's hard i mean yeah the problem is is that the alternative to facts is usually seen as narrative as story and, and you know, sort of rhetoric and emotion is a huge component in storytelling so you find yourself getting. You know, I've I've stopped arguing on Twitter. I mean, it's just it's just not worth it. It's not, it's not a great medium for sort of communicating the, the narrative you need to win an argument. But you know, as soon as you as soon as you switch from just throwing facts at people to trying to to, to pull together a story and a narrative, you immediately get into emotion and things get heated and you both walk away. You know, none the wiser. I think one of the most interesting approaches is uh, is James O'Brien, a, a DJ in the UK, a sort of a, a talk radio DJ in the UK, who literally just asks questions of people. He gets people on who he vehemently disagrees with and just asks them questions until they, they generally sort of flame out in terms of their argument and, and find its own sort of logical fallacies for themselves. Not always, but, but quite frequently. And, and I think it's what it shows is the starting point is that is having that conversation, is, is, is having shared ground rules for debate, having a forum that says, you know, just because you disagree with me, it does not make you a Nazi. You know, we should be having this conversation. Uh, let, let's say that there are some actual Nazis out there at the moment. But, you know, just because you disagree with me does not make you a terrible person. You know, we should set some ground rules for debate. We should have this conversation and we should keep the, the lines of communication open. And, you know, and sadly, that seems to be the opposite of the trend at the moment. You know, you have block lists on Twitter. You're a great example. Oh, you know, all these people disagree with me. They've taken different interpretation of the evidence. They are, you know, undermining my right to exist therefore i'll just shut them out of the conversation and ignore that they exist at all i mean i think that's really dangerous find an asshole grab coffee and afterwards you might realize they're not actually an asshole but literally do it over coffee do yeah. not try to do it at twitter <laughs> don't don't do it at twitter worst case scenario maybe a skype call but i think in person probably better it's it's much harder to hate someone when yeah. you're sitting across I, from them you know those conversations are really hard right i, I did it recently over, over a thorny topic you know, someone who I like, but who I disagreed with. And we went out and we didn't, we didn't end up agreeing, but we both came away knowing, I think, that neither a person was a bad person. Yeah, you can see at least where the other person's coming from, if not respect their opinion. Absolutely. Tom, this has been a fun one. Before we ask people or tell them where to find you and your awesomeness, what is one thing you would want to pe leave people with? A quote, a call to action, anything? Get a new hobby. So I, I think most people get stuck in their ways. I think you can spend six months in a job and pretty much bring down the blinkers and forget about the outside world and start to believe that the way things are done is the way things have always been done. And we, we sort of overestimate our own knowledge and understanding as well. Go and learn something that you do not know how to do, ideally as embarrassing as possible. So I, I learned to roller skate two years ago. I am not a naturally physically coordinated person. And I was getting lapped and whipped by, you know, eight-year-old kids who were a thousand times better than me, my kids included. But you learn, A, it's humbling. You realize how little you know about lots of spheres of knowledge. Um, and B, it sort of awakens those learning cells in your brain and, and gets you into the process of, of knowledge and skill acquisition. And I think there is no more valuable skill right now than that. 
and falling on your butt and learning from it. Improv. Improv. That's a great one as well if you want to learn some skills while also being embarrassed. And it's uh, Thanks so much for coming today, Tom. This has been a fun one. I'm sure people will love it. And they'll probably love, love you. Where can they find you? Uh, dead easy. I'm at TomCheeseWrite.com uh, or at Book of the Future on Twitter. And of course, we'll have links and show notes and all that good stuff at Disruptors.fm. Thanks for coming, Tom. Absolute pleasure, man. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you liked it and you can't support us financially, hint, hint, you can at Patreon, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. Then consider sharing this with a friend, leaving a review, and helping us reach more people. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.